Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Parents, don't antagonize your children in such a way that they're angry, that they're mad, that they're violent, that they're, they're seething, that they are upset all the time, they're, they're pouting. And when parents decide that their fun, their privilege, their lifestyle, their agenda is more important than building the right stuff in their sons or daughters, so many times they become passive. The truth is, sitting on the sidelines as a parent just won't cut it for your kids. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Thou Shalt Not Be a Passive Parent, where he shares proven truth to help you actively engage in the lives of your kids. That message is coming up next on The Winning Walk. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Thou Shalt Not Be a Passive Parent. Genesis 25, 27 through 28. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let's prepare for the teaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful for so much, perhaps for too much. Make us stewards. Remind us that we're not owners of all the blessings you give to us. Lord, you speak now and let me get out of the way so that thy word exclusively may be heard. And Lord, give us ears to hear as we've never heard before. And give us minds to comprehend as we've never comprehended before. Speak true truth to us. And may, Father, in our heart of hearts we sing it's not my brother or my sister or the deacon or the preacher, it's me, O oh Lord. Speak to us individually. Let me get out of the way so that thy word might be heard. We pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Isaac, the biblical patriarch, was a passive father. It's hard to say anything more indicting than that. Isaac was a passive father. He and Rebekah had twin sons. One son was his favorite. One son was his wife's favorite. The turmoil of the house was sibling rivalry. And they fought and they debated and they deceived. They lied. Duplicity was the order of the day. Isaac was an intelligent man, but he was passive. He did nothing. It even gets worse as passivity is handed out from one generation to another generation. 
because his son Jacob had more children and more damage was done because with all of his children, there was this still father who was passive in being the spiritual leader and lover in the home. And therefore, in Jacob's family, there was incest, rape, murder, deception, sibling rivalry that got to the extent that one set of brothers sold one of their brothers as a slave. And over and over, you read in the Bible that Jacob knew about this and he commented on it. Jacob realized this was going on and it would say that, you know, he spoke to his children. But so many times these things happened and Jacob was aware of them. And the Bible says, Jacob did nothing. If you are a father and you are passive, I don't know I could say anything much worse about you. A passive father. I'm not talking about being an introvert or an extrovert. I'm not talking about personality types. I'm talking about a father, and for that matter, parents who are basically passive. Now, what do you call parents who are passive in the bringing up their children? I think you could call them parents who operate and who parent under the curse. And that's exactly what Isaac and Jacob did. They, they parented under the curse. You say, what in the world's a curse? Let me go back and remind you. We have to go back always to our moorings, to beginning, to our foundations. In the book of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, and God said, you can eat anything in this garden you want to eat except that fruit from the tree that stands in the middle of the garden. You can eat everything else in all the pristine world. You can enjoy everything else in all the pristine world. You have total freedom and liberty, but you can't eat of this one tree. It's like trying not to think about a hippopotamus for 30 seconds, isn't it? You can eat of everything except that one, oh, that one tree. Trying not to think about a hippopotamus for 30 seconds is impossible. But you know what happened? Satan came, and for the first time, Satan told the truth. He said, Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what happened. They ate of the fruit. They had the knowledge of good and evil. You know what that means? It means that they took upon themselves the position of God. They decided that they would run their own life. They would control their own life. They would call their own shots. They would make their own decisions. And that's what all sin is about. That's what that first sin was about. The issue before you and me always is one of control. Will I run my life or will God run my life? It was control. And that is what the curse is all about. That is what original sin is all about in the practical outcroppings of it. It's a matter of control. Therefore, we see Isaac and Jacob parented and were basically passive parents because they wanted to control their own life. They wanted the freedom to do their own thing, and they were not willing, listen to this, to pay the high price 
of building the right stuff into their children. Parenting is hard work. It's a lot of things, but I guarantee you one thing, it is hard, demanding work. And when parents decide that their fun, their privilege, their lifestyle, their agenda is more important than building the right stuff in their sons or daughters, so many times they become passive. And passivity is described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, to wrath. And literally the word for father there in the Greek can mean parents. Parents don't antagonize your children in such a way that they're angry, that they're mad, that they're violent, that they're, they're seething, that they are upset all the time, they're, they're pouting. And that happens when parents become passive because they are parenting what I call under the curse. Now, what rationale could any mom or dad give for not being spiritual leaders and not being real parents to their sons and daughters? How can anyone stand up and look in the mirror and face life when they are passive as parents? How do you do that? I thought about that a long time. I think it's because so many parents in the 21st century have bought into various myths. And the first myth is the myth of the good-bad child. And by the way, this myth is built into the American lifestyle, the good-bad child. You know what I'm talking about? It, it, it's the part Mickey Rooney played in another generation, the, the good-bad child. It's, it's the Mark Twain. It's the Buster Brown. It's Dennis the Menace. They're bad, but they're so cute and they're so good. You know, they're bad and good at the same time, so we bought into this myth that children are both good and bad and don't worry about it, it'll work itself out because this leads us to a second myth that passive parents fall back on. And that's the myth of natural goodness. Do you hear people say, oh, I think everybody's basically good? You know, I, I think we have to be taught how to do that which is wrong. We have to be taught how to, how to go down the wrong path. Everybody is basically good. Haven't you heard that is a myth? that has been proclaimed and propagated all the way through our culture. And so we say everybody's basically good and, and, and children are strong and, and, and they're, you know, they can bounce back. And so just don't mess them up. Let them kind of flow through life. We'll just back up and, and let nature take its course because every child, every person is basically good. That's a myth. It's a myth. And that leads us to the third myth that passive parents, I think, fall back on. And that is... Who am I to impose my beliefs on my children? Heard that one? You know, we, we, this, is the, this should be a democracy and children ought to, ought to go their own way. And who am I to try to impose my beliefs upon my sons and upon my daughters? Now, now let the media pour their beliefs. Let the culture inculcate their beliefs in them and let their friends, you know, tell their lifestyle. But parents, by all means, don't mess up your children by trying to, to pour your belief and your lifestyle into them. That is a myth. But that's happening all around us. Passive parents 
passive parents. And so many times, passive parents say things like, we can't afford that. And they give no explanation. They just say, we can't afford that. Or they say something like, uh, sit down and be quiet. Jim DeLotes thought that was his middle name until he was 12. <laughs> sit down and be quiet. See, that's what parents say. Sit down and be quiet. And we say, I'm tired. And by the way, those three phrases, they took a national poll, and you know how accurate they are. Uh, they took a national poll and they said, that's the three statements that the kids said they hear most from their parents. Sit down and be quiet. We can't afford that. And I'm tired. Now we use all those statements. I've used every one of those statements. They're good statements. But we just state them and let them stand alone without giving an explanation or rationale. You see, we withdraw from their life and we become passive. Passive parents is a deadly, deadly thing. The other side of passivity is we become possessive parents. And this flips out in so many very, very interesting ways. Possessive parents sometimes become overly lenient. Let me tell you how this plays out. So many times in families where there's been a divorce, usually the mother has custody of the children, right? Normally. And the father has visitation rights, maybe for a weekend, every other weekend, and maybe they can keep the child for a summer. What happens when this father, who in all probability has run off, little girl who worked down the hall in the office who was so cute, and he fell in love for the first time in his life? You know, he didn't fall in love, he fell in lust, but that's neither here nor there. He divorced his wife. Getting too close for anybody here? I hope so. It happens all the time. And here's the result with the children. They become ping pong balls in the divorce. Now, what happens is the father keeps the child for a month in the summer and the father takes them to theme parks. The father gives them money. The father gives them clothes. The father gives them toys. The father entertains them. And I'm telling you, that child says, boy, my daddy is great. And then the child goes back to mother with school and homework and clothes and decisions day by day. And mother says, I'd better be lenient with this child because they love their daddy so much. Overly lenient. Now let me tell you something. Malachi says, God is speaking, God hates divorce. He does not hate those who have been divorced. He hates divorce itself. And if you are divorced and there are still children in play, you sit down under God with your formal mate and you do business intelligently and biblically about the rearing of those children. Forget your pride. Forget you want your children to think mama's right or daddy's right or someone else is right. Sit down and do it right because the end result is so many times the father and then the mother is forced to be overly lenient and guess who pays the price? The children. The children. And another thing, this is the other direction of a kind of passivity that's built in here. Not only being overly lenient, but being overly strict. Dot every I, cross every T. Overly protective, 
and that leads into be overly involved. Uh, your, your daughter's a cheerleader in junior high school, and she cheers at all the games, and you go to every game, the soccer meets, the basketball, the football, the tennis, the thing, and all of a sudden, you're overly involved. Every time a parent can go in homeroom, every kind of parent can show up, you are omnipresent with your children. You never let them move very far until mom or dad is there hovering. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to be involved, but you can be overly involved. That's the other extreme of this. So the bottom line here is when we're parenting under the curse, when we're parenting on the basis that we are going to live out our lives vicariously through our children, or we're going to let our children go their own way and do their own thing because we want to have our own happiness and our own pleasure and pursue our own vocational interests, this is when we are parenting under the curse. We are provoking our children to wrath. We're provoking our children to rebellion. We're provoking our children to go in the opposite way that God has bent them, as the Bible says. That is parenting under the curse. Now, how do you parent with grace? That's the rest of Ephesians 6, 4. Bring them up in the admonition, in the discipline, in the teaching of the Lord. That's how you parent with grace. And that's an important thing. And the secret of that I call the AAA. How many of you belong to the American Automobile Association? You're a member of AAA. Would you lift your hand? You know, I belong for years and years, but every time I had a flat tire, I'd look and I was about two months overdue from paying. Anyway, let me give you parents AAA. If you're going to parent with grace with your sons and daughters, there are three A's, AAA, you need to nail down. First of all, there is affirmation. You've got to affirm your children, especially dad. You know, the parents figured out pretty early that there's a relationship with mom that's sort of supernatural. See, mom carried them for those nine months. But dad can kind of back up. We've got to affirm them that we are proud of them, that we love them. They are special. And you can do this at night. Dad, go by the bed and hug them and kiss them and stroke their hair at all ages and say, I want you to know I'm proud of you. You're special. You're just exactly what I would have ordered if I could have written out a prescription for you as God gave them. Affirm your children. Eddie Canner, the last generation, as he looked at a list of the FBI's 10 most wanted, he said, those who are on that list would not be among the 10 most wanted if they had been wanted when they were children. Let your children know that they are wanted. Affirm them. Build them up. Encourage them. That's what we're to do. Also, we are to appreciate them. They need appreciation. There's not anybody here that does not need affirmation and appreciation by significant people that we look up to or significant people that we know. Everybody needs that. And especially through these little miracles that God has entrusted us with. They need appreciation. I always enjoy, and we have our concerts here. We have, uh, I remember uh, so many little children singing, teenagers and preschoolers singing, and 
And I, I remember it's great, particularly when the preschoolers sing. We'll have two or three hundred up here at a time, and, and they'll walk up, and, you know, they're free agents. I mean, <laughs> they just do anything. And it, I mean, it's some experiences up here. They, and they line up all the little preschool, you know, all your sons and daughters, and, and we, they, they sit there, and, and they present their little concert. And by the way, I sit up here usually. I, I don't try to watch the kids. I watch their parents. You are a much better show than the kids. <laughs> it is great to see the dad there say to the son. The mother say, you know, they're, they're just a multiplicity of signals that you're giving all these little ones up here. And they're looking and they're waving and they're walking around. I mean, they're having a big time. They don't know anything about me. And it's a show to watch you. And every mom and dad or grandma, they look only at their son. Or they, it could just be one person up here, nobody else. This sort of Boy, they're zeroed in. Does she look right? Is he doing it right? Is he saying every word? You know, how do they look? Man, it's a big deal. And, and you know, we've had some terrible head-on crashes with photographers of mom and dad. Boom, down here at the front. I mean, trying to, it is a zoo. I remember one such occasion. After it was over, I was talking to someone and I kind of looked over the side and I saw one little, oh, I guess a five-year-old girl. She just ran out and the concert was over and she grabbed her daddy's leg and she was looking up at him and the daddy said, Susan, 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 you be quiet. I I'm talking to Mr. Coughlin here. You just be quiet. I wanted to go over there and grab him and say, you are too stupid to be a parrot. <laughs> what was he saying? Be careful here. He was saying, my talking with this adult, Mr. Kaufman, is more important than affirming you as probably she was the first time in her life she'd ever performed anything in public. All she did was dad to say, boy, that was great. And parents, learn how to get down to the level with your kids. You know, just, just walk around a room with adults sometime on your knees and you'll see how they feel. <laughs> it's a different ball game down here. Get down with them. Look at them. Identify with them. If that dad had just for a moment got out and said, you are the best, you were so cute, I'm so proud of you, you knew almost every word, anything. Mr. Coughlin, Mr. Rockefeller, and, and everybody, doesn't make a bit of difference. Children need affirmation and appreciation, and they need affection. I've told you before, I had three sons. I kissed them all their life. I still kiss them. I have men that I love in this church. I might walk up to you and kiss you sometime because that, that's the way you do it, to express my affection, profess my love. I care about you. You care about me. There's nothing wrong with that in the world. And sometimes you guys don't may not want you to do that. I, I remember a teenage guy said, Dad, you come up and kiss me in front of my buddies. They just think that's weird. He said, well, we'll substitute, maybe a high five. And so, bam, they gave a high five. Show affection to your children. Touch and hold and, and cuddle and love and listen. That's important. They need affection from mom and from dad. The girls and the boys show affection. It's important. Triple A, affirmation. You're wanted, you're special. Appreciation. I'm proud of you. You're special. You're wonderful. And affection. And in the process, 
if you're going to be a parenting with grace, you also have to understand the stages of development with your children. Now, th this is a matter of discernment. This is a matter of knowing where they are in their maturity. And I've just listed five little stages of development, five phases in the life of your children. You need to be aware where they are in those phases because you, how your parent in one phase is not how you parent in another phase. In other words, how you parent one child is not how you parent another child if you're parenting with grace, see? I mean, the, the first is from birth until they're two. This is the caregiving phase. It's full time, isn't it? I mean, I'm telling you, it is full time and, and bottles and diapers and naps and, and doctors and, I mean, the whole thing is full time. I mean, the first two years, it is, that's it. That's life. Everything is defined by that little bundle that God has given to you. And so that is the caregiving phase. The second phase go from about two until they get to be about six, and that is the authority phase. That's when you assert your leadership. Now understand, you said two to six, that's exactly right. That's when they come to realize that it's mom and dad who calls the shots, it's mom and dad who has the authority, it's mom and dad who has the leadership, and you have to deal with temper tantrums. You have to deal with a whole lot of things that take place in this time of establishing your authority. The family is not a democracy. The parents establish authority from two to six. And then from about six to 12, that's another phase. I call that the teaching or the training phase. This is when some discipline comes in. And parents, you have to discipline with discernment. That's so important. I see parents discipline without discernment. I mean, it may be a situation that you'll have to spank. It may be a ruler or a paddle or a spoon or whatever. There may be corporal punishment there. It may be a situation where you have to ground or you have to have timeouts. It may be a situation where you say, partner, I'd get on their level, partner, let me tell you something. I know you realize what happened here. I know you realize what you did was wrong. But man, it's all right. I know you got the message. Get out of here. See? You got to consider what's happened and consider if they're broken. Consider if they understand and use the right kind of teaching, training, methodology to get the message across. You, you don't punish or discipline when you're angry. You have to count to a thousand to think it through. This is so important. And this is what happened during this training stage because they're learning great principles for life. Uh, a daddy took his son uh, fishing and they had a little cabin in the middle of a, of a lake in New Hampshire. And they went late in the afternoon and they went out to a little dock and they were catching little sunfish there with a pole and some worms, and, and they kept fishing. The boy was having such a good time. And so then he got his rod and reel out. He threw it out there and cast one of those spinner baits. He started popping into the water and just playing around with it. And all of a sudden, this fish came up there and hit that little bait. <gasps> if you're a fisherman, it's like a commode is flushing when it's a big fish. <gasps> and struck that bait, bam, 
And boy, a little guy just inadvertently set the hook, and I mean the battle was on. He was fighting that guy. He couldn't see it because it was dark. It was jumping up. He fought it. His daddy was giving him instructions as to what to do. And finally, the fish was exhausted. He pulled that big monster ever so carefully on the dock. And he looked down. He said, Dad, look at that. It's the biggest bass I've ever seen. Have you ever seen a bass that big? His father said, it's the biggest bass I've ever seen. Then his father looked at his watch and struck a match and saw it was about five minutes after 10 at night. He said, son, you know, in New Hampshire, we have seasons for catching bass, and bass season doesn't open till 12 midnight today. He said, you missed it by almost two hours. You've got to take that fish off the hook and put it back in the water. Ooh, that little 11-year-old said, Dad, I'll never catch a fish this big again. His dad says, there are plenty of fish, but that's the law. Put it back in the water. Boy, he reached down. Can you imagine? Took the hook out of the fish's mouth, put the fish back in the water, and that big monster, he just swam off there in the lake. That was 34 years ago. That little boy today is an architect in New York City. And he says, you know, since that time, I've never seen or caught a bass that big. He said, I've never seen or caught a bass that big as I caught when I was 11 years old. But he said, I want to tell you something. I have seen that bass almost every day of my professional life. He said, every time I'm making out the charge slip, the time it took me to draw those details in that architectural project. He says, I think about adding about an hour or so. Nobody would know. He says, I see that big bass. He said, every time I see someone the opposite sex sort of pay special attention to me and flirt with me and kind of give me the eye that, you know, I may be available. You and I need to go out and have dinner together. He said, I think about that big bass and the morality of it. He said, every time I'm tempted to lie or cheat or steal or do something immoral or take a shortcut in my profession, he said, I see that big bass. He said, that big bass was the catch of a lifetime. Parents, make sure in the bringing up of your children, there are a lot of big bass illustrations that they can use when mother or dad did that which was right. Because you're teaching by your model and by your words something that they will carry with them for good or for evil the rest of their life. So there is that 6 to 12 period. That is that teaching period. Then there's that 12. By the way, the teaching period is like a personal trainer. Uh, you, you train, you, you say, this is how you play the game. Here are the rules. You get in shape, and it's a personal trainer. And now you go from 12 to 19. That's when the parents are no longer teaching. They become coaches. See, they're not in the game. The children are not in the real game from 6 to 12. But from about 12 to 19, they're out there on the field, and the parents are coaches. You're cheerleaders. You're calling some plays, and they have to check off at the line themselves because they are running the plays, but you coach, you coach. And they'll heed your coaching if you've done the job, if you have been there, proactive, godly, and sensitive, 
during all the stages of child caring, authority, training, teaching, then coaching, and they'll listen. They get to be 19. You're no longer a coach, mom and dad. Now you become a friend. Isn't that great? And you sit down with your sons, your daughters, they're 19 up and get a cup of coffee, and they're your friend. Prior to this time, there was that one-up relationship. Now it's the eye-to-eye relationship. Now, leadership comes in the lives of your children not by authority, but leadership comes by relationship, you see. And I can tell you, it is magnificent to have children that are your friends. You see, that's our goal. But are you parents here tonight willing to pay the price to build life and the right stuff in your sons and daughters? Are you really willing to pay the price? Dr. Neil Littleford and his son Mark went fishing in Alaska. He would promised his son they would go there for years and Mark now was 12 years old. They flew to Alaska. They, they had a little pontoon plane there, and two other men went along with them, a pilot and another man, and they, they flew back into a little lake there in Alaska, and they began to fish, but they didn't catch anything. And the pilot said, I know where we'll go. And so he, he took off the next day, and they flew into a bay there in the Arctic area, and he said, the salmon are coming in. We're going to catch fish here. And sure enough, they put their hook in the water. Those fish were, were, were tackling each other, trying to get to the hook. I mean, it was, it was a May day. They were catching fish, salmon left and right. It was some kind of day. The dad was excited. The boy was excited. Man, they were catching fish. They were catching fish. At the end of the day, they, they went to get in the plane, and, and they'd forgotten something. There's a 23-foot tide into this particular bay in Alaska, and the plane was now on rocks. So they couldn't take off with the pontoon, so they spent the night, they cooked the fish. Can you imagine man in that pristine forest cooking those salmon they'd caught camping out? It was a great night. And next morning they got up and the tide had come back in. They got in that little pontoon plane and they took off, but they discovered too late that one of the pontoons was cracked and water had come in the pontoon and filled it and the plane began to gyrate as it got a little bit over the water and they crashed in the Arctic Bay. All four of them survived the crash. Two of the men got out and they started to swim for shore and, and Dr. Littleford and his son Mark, they started to swim for shore and the two men were strong swimmers and they made it to shore and, and the doctor was a strong swimmer but a 12-year-old boy, he was a good swimmer, but wasn't physically strong enough to make it with a riptide. And so the two men got to shore. They looked back and they saw that the father could have swam to shore safely, but he couldn't have brought his son with him and the son wasn't strong enough to do it. So they watched the father and son as the father held his boy Mark and they floated out into that Arctic water to live a camel spot and they disappeared together. And they died shortly thereafter of hypothermia. Thought about that a long time. 
I said, I, I wonder what I would have done if I'd been that father. I'm not particularly heroic type. What would I have done? I decided 100% sure I'd have stayed with my boys. I could have swam out. Man, I'd have stayed with my guys. I'm sure. And I don't think that's very unusual. I think virtually every mother and every father here would have done the same thing Dr. Neil Litterford did. I believe you would. But I want to ask you something. If you as parents are willing to die with your children, are you willing to build life in your children as they're growing up, parents. You'd make the ultimate sacrifice of giving your life. But will you make those daily sacrifices in order to build a man out of that boy and a girl, a woman out of that girl? They'll be God-fearing folks. And they'll rise up and call you blessed. Thou shalt not be a passive parent. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.